on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. And so if we're gonna build sustainable models, it has to be through a capacity building and distributed leadership lens, in my opinion. And then it has to be supported with like giving good resources, adequate time, but also pouring into people, the human resources, human capital across the organization, students, families, teachers, administrators, et cetera, so that there is no single world figure leading and owning this work. If a table won't stand without well-distributed legs, and a bridge won't hold without well-distributed force, and a car won't run without a well-distributed frame, what makes us think that we can accomplish goals in our school buildings without well-distributed leadership? Even in most dysfunctional school systems, distributive leadership can produce better collaboration and insight that can lead to better cultural and instructional outcomes. I got a chance to talk with Dr. Sean Nelms to discuss his book, Leading with Purpose, Empowering Others to Create Lasting Change. Join us as we discuss the personal and professional journeys that are empowered when we see and recognize the power in others. This is the LP. Greetings, folks and fam of All Walks and Talks to the LP podcast, Literature in Practice, where our job is to take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Today's podcast guest is a special one. We have Dr. Sean Nelms, who has authored the book, Leading with Purpose, Empowering Others to Create Lasting Change. Dr. Sean Nelms is an author and prominent figure in the field of education and school transformation. He is the vice president for community partnerships at the University of Rochester. One of his notable achievements was creating and implementing a school transformation model for the lowest performing school in the lowest performing district in New York State. That's my home, Rochester, New York. Sad truth, but beautiful work. <laughs> Dr. Nelms is also the director for the Center for Urban Education Success, or CUES, at the U of R, or University of Rochester. Additionally, Dr. Nelms is the CEO of the Nelms Consulting Group, where he provides expertise and guidance on creating equitable systems and effective administrative leadership. He also neglected to announce the unfortunate truth that he is a Buffalo Bills fan. Everybody, Dr. Sean Nels. I, I had to squeeze that in there real quick. <laughs> right, go Bills. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> hey, so before we get into your book, you know, it's a traditional question to ask. What was your favorite text as a kid, adolescent, or adult? Man, that's a great question. So I would say that my favorite text, and one that had the most meaning to me, was the first book that I read cover to cover. It was Cry the Beloved Country. And that book was amazing. I, I think later on there was a movie made about it with James Earl Jones. But it was the first book that allowed me to transport into a different space, a different place. And it was a story about two individuals living in South Africa, who's uh, two men who are traveling to the place where there was a murder committed. One um, person's son killed the other. And all the history that led up to that event and how these two older folks within that same community, one black, one white, came together. But it really took me through this country that I couldn't envision years later. Four years ago, I went to Kenya, and I remember uh, getting off the plane and, and taking the, the uh, car to our hotel and destination, and it just, that book came back in, something I hadn't read in 30 years, came back, and thinking about how I saw Africa different from what I saw in the UNICEF commercials with the starving kids in Ethiopia, with, you know, that's, that was my vision, you know, I went to Kenya, then went to Tanzania, and I'm looking at the beautiful ocean, 
And for the first time, I'm like, why didn't I see oceans in the portrayal of Africans in my throughout my history books? And so, you know, literature will allow people to transport to places that, that they have not been to or places that are unknown. Um, but it also allows you to make connections to those places later in life. And that's the book that has stuck with me. I'm a huge fan of James Baldwin. Um, uh, you know, so I read all his books now uh, later in life. But that was the book I would say has continued to cycle and remind me the importance of literature and what it can do for children, especially those who feel landlocked, if you will, in their community or landlocked in a broken or thriving school system, landlocked. At the time, we didn't have technology like we do now. So even being able to vision things outside of television, books create portals and pathways and gateways for kids and for adults to places that they themselves may not have ever imagined. And it also helps to dispel some of the negative images or uh, beliefs that were still in them by unknowing people. Hmm. Um, your book, Leading with Purpose, um, who is it designed for? Um, what landlocked folks might this book be designed for? Or what portals or gateways does this book represent for folks who could uh, benefit for those por- from those portals or gateways? Yeah, so you mentioned earlier in the intro, I, I was fortunate enough to be superintendent of a school a transformation model uh, in New York State in a school that was the lowest performing school in the lowest performing district in New York State. Graduation rate was around 29%. After seven years, we got that graduation rate to, to improve to 85%. And so I started thinking about how we did that, how we did that work. How do we change leadership? How do we change efficacy? People believe they have the ability to achieve a desired result. How do we redefine empowerment and distribute leadership in ways that created a sense of purpose and accountability for everyone in the system? And we did that by taking my dissertation, which focused on distributed leadership and capacity building as critical elements of, of turnaround or transformation efforts. And so I wanted to write a book that was vulnerable and, and is describing not just for East, but the ups and downs of leadership and trying to change complex settings. And as I had a group of people start to read it, what I realized is that the book is not just for school leaders. The book was applicable to anyone who was really committed to changing the conditions for themselves and others in systems that have been historically fragmented, broken, or, or, or marginalized. And so uh, I wanted to write a book that was readable and relatable. It was quick to read, um, but also people could leave with some tools and, and strategies and gems that allow them to be better in the now, but also allow them to be better moving forward and, and to bring other leaders with them. The idea around distributed leadership is that you, um, and capacity building, capacity building is you get smarter about the work with individuals so you understand the context that you're trying to address. Distributed leadership is once you understand a place and you know it well enough to, to know that it needs to be changed, then how do you allow, allow and empower, allow through empowerment, people to be the innovators and change makers in those systems? And so those ideas of capacity building and distributed leadership is, is a theme throughout the text. And I use a number of vulnerable moments in my leadership journey over the last 26 years to explain um, how I might have done things differently or when I did things well, how it had a lasting impact on others, how others had a lasting impact on me. So it is a cyclical process of leadership intended to help systems improve regardless of what those systems are. But a lot of the examples are rooted in the education context. Can you share a bit more about how a distributed leadership impacted um, instruction and teacher planning and professional learning? 
That's a great, that's a great point. So one, one of the chapters I have in the book, uh, I highlight a reading specialist. My first year as a middle school principal, you know, uh, I think I was a principal at 29 years old. So I, I was smelling myself, as they say, right? I, I was, I was out there, I was doing the work, I was hired, I was excited. And I started to think about how we're going to change this school, middle school, that was at the, the bottom third of academic performance within that community. I went in with all the great ideas that I had used in the previous district. So I took no time to really understand their context. I brought in content. That was my focus. And I realized about six months on the job that A, no one was, was, was doing the work. B, I really wasn't the smartest person in the room in terms of uh, promoting literacy um, as a foundational uh, anchor for our school. And, 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 and third, I realized that everyone else knew it too. <laughs> so, so that second year, I found the smartest teacher in the building um, that I thought at the time, uh, Jen, and, and had her lead the PD. And I was vulnerable with the staff and said, you know, I, I, I know last year was rough. I'm learning about literacy. You can see all the, the literacy experts laughing, like as if they didn't know that, right? So, so it wasn't like I, I wasn't telling them anything shocking. And I said, Jen's going to be working with us. But even saying that, I was putting Jen in the position to be the teacher's pet, if you will. And I was saying her role is not to criticize her colleagues, but to help me, help me build capacity in myself. And so Jen would do classroom visits with me, not observations, visits with me. We, we did a, a, a school-wide book study of Cristovani's work. We continue to really anchor into what it meant for students to be good readers. How do we how do we know when they're good readers? And, and so distributed leadership is understanding and capacity building is understanding that you have to understand both the context and the content experts, find who those people are, create a safe space for them to lead. And as a as a formal leader in title only, our job is to become part of that ecosystem not to create it and step outside of it, but to sit side by side and become smarter about the work. And so once we did that, then you saw the work take shape and you saw that school, that middle school go from the bottom third to the top third in less than three years. And it wasn't because of me, uh, because when I left the work continued, it was sustained. It was because the teachers themselves were empowered to do that work. And they, they actually owned the creation, the revision, the implementation, and they became accountable for what they created in the system. That same approach was applied to the East experience where our teachers over the last eight years created from scratch in many cases, um, curriculum and curricular models to and modules for students and teachers to engage in with dedicated planning time with teachers so they can kind of get smart about the work together. And same thing within three years, we saw the graduation rate move from 29% to over 50%. And then the next three years, it hit the 70. And then the last two years, it was above 80. Again, I'm not there any longer. I'm not at the university as a vice president, but that work continues. And so we're going to build sustainable models. It has to be through a capacity building and distributed leadership lens, in my opinion. And then it has to be supported with by giving good resources, adequate time, but also pouring into um, the people, the human resources, human capital across the organization, students, families, teachers, you know, administrators, et cetera, so that there is no single world figure leading and owning this work. Yeah, this model in distributed leadership, I feel like addresses a key missing puzzle piece in the whole flow of curriculum implementation, right? Well, a curriculum adoption and implementation, 
what you just named was like consistent collaboration and work with and ideating with and allowing people to kind of show that their strong suits and lead from there and coordinate around that. And that allows for there to be a sustainable model where it's not like, you know, one leader dependent. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book was your blending your professional experience with your personal experience. Um, and one of the stories you told about you growing up, um, you said that you and your siblings used to say, no one eats if any of us are hungry. How can this apply to how teachers learn within a community? In my family, it was really important that, you know, we believe that we are only as strong as, as we are whole. And so, you know, our favorite cartoon growing up was Voltron. You know, I'm aging myself a little bit, but, you know, when these bots come together, they can create and destroy, create one huge robot that could destroy, you know, any any of the opposition. But separately, you know, they would struggle with uh, with defeating their enemies. And so this idea that the collective we um, is, is, is emphasized is critically important for school success and transformation. I think often, and I talk about this in part one of the book, that we have policy demands placed upon uh, school district of the state and, and federal and, and local levels, but we don't take the time to build capacity in our school leaders, our teacher leaders, our teachers, our students, our family. We don't prepare them for anything. The, the legislation, you know, we'll, we'll have a, a, a legislative decision to come out and people are scrambling to try to make it work because there's often money attached to it. And, and that funding doesn't all necessarily account for the readiness of the leaders, the readiness of those communities to do that work. Now, sometimes the, the, what's being passed is, is needed and it's important. But if you don't put the time into understanding and unpacking the why as much as you do in trying to implement the how, then the what never occurs. And so I think when you think about no one starves, like I'm not going to isolate part of my teaching core and say, well, math and science teachers, this new policy is really directed towards a STEM field. So you're gonna go out this up on your own. Hey, the rest of the building, you keep doing what you're gonna do, right? So when I talked about that middle school experience, we focused on literacy. At the time, literacy was a huge initiative um, that was needed and necessary and continues to be but we had to all see ourselves as having a role in helping our kids be better readers, writers, speakers, and listeners. And so that's why we chose that as our anchor at the middle school. But again, it wasn't successful in the beginning because I passed down something without preparing myself, most importantly, or the school. So once I became more knowledgeable and my capacity was built, I was able to hear what teachers were saying from a different lens. I, I can, instead of me thinking they're just complaining, they're not hardworking, they don't want to do the tough work. They're rejecting me as a new leader. I was starting to hear, once I was knowledgeable that, no, they were saying, we don't have the classroom libraries to do this work. We need to have more relevant texts. Can you go and get texts that represent the kids in our classroom? So when you become knowledgeable or smarter about something, you hear dissent differently. You, you hear it as a opportunity and a challenge to provide a different space for thinking, for innovation. Um, uh, and, and so I think that's where if we all don't eat, that means we are kind of feeding on the same level of knowledge, right? If we're not all eating in the same way, if someone's going to starve, and we can't allow that. We got to bring them to the table and, and not as a charity, but bring them to the table so they feel a, a certain presence there and, and they feel like they're, they're part of that, that ecosystem, that community. So 
we did that as, as children. Whenever one of us struggled, we always leaned in. And it was never from a point of you're not as smart as I am or you're not as fast as I am from the athletic field. It was we're going to work together to make sure that you're going to maximize your, your skill set, your talents to the degree that you want to meet to meet them. And I think that's where um, I see that bridge between that quote that we often still say in my family and the work of leadership, particularly in school settings. In our school, I would always say, um, and, and, it's, and people laugh when I say this, that's why I'm chuckling. I would say, celebrate your incompetence daily. And, and I'm telling people, like, I want you to mess up every day in an effort to be better. Don't make the same mistakes every day, you know? But, but keep, keep, like, keep trying new things because if we're doing it as school leaders, our teachers will feel comfortable doing it. If they feel comfortable doing it, our students will feel comfortable doing it. You know, and if they, students feel comfortable doing it, they'll do it outside in the community, out in the workplace, where they're constantly thinking about how to innovate in those spaces. And so if we don't have a, a system that says innovation and failing forward and being incompetent on a, on, a, on a, you know, in an effort to become more confident about something is not encouraged and celebrated, then people will get still continue to spin in stagnation and try to figure out the system, you know, how to work the system as opposed to how to work within the system. You shared some relatable stories that show how dark and ugly working in our systems can be. What can you say to the teacher who is in the thick of an ugly system and doesn't see any light of change? You know, and that's hard. I mean, COVID was that way for a lot of us, particularly as superintendents. <clears throat> we were getting the pressure from, from uh, the government, pressure from local folks, across religious lines. And I mean, it was, it was a bizarre place to be. And we almost became the epicenter of every decision, food distribution, vaccinations, uh, how we spend public money, um, every, all the political debates around it, like it was all centered at the local level and oftentimes at the school level. And so things did become very dark. In chapter, I think 15 in the book, I talk about this, this one group of individuals that we met with every Friday. And we would talk about, uh, you know, uh, the issues at hand um, and how we were addressing it across the country. And we call this chat the bourbon chat and uh, because we would have a bourbon in one hand and our our plans in another we just would share you know a libation and and then literature right? so, so uh and what i realized in that moment is that no one including teachers no one's alone in this that we have to utilize our resources and find people that are able and willing to take this journey with us and not people who are gonna don't go into a system that's that's so dark that you that you go into a space that doesn't affirm you or makes you question what you're doing. Find a balanced perspective of people who are going to say to you, yeah, that's horrible, but here's how you're going to address it. Oh, that's horrible. Yep. Time to get over it and move on. <laughs> you've, been, you've been on that issue for a year. Oh, it's horrible. And you have a, and you should be feeling that pain because what's happening to you right now is not right. Like the balance about from that becomes critically important. What's beautiful about social media is that you don't have to do it with people in your own district. You know, you, 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 um, you can tap into people across the world who are going through these issues and, or through these celebrations, also find time to celebrate. One thing I, I always say to educators that I wish I would have known a lot sooner because our job is so stressful. We deal with human dynamics, kids in trauma, parents in trauma, colleagues in trauma, and the successes too. I tell every educator, 
you know, use your EAP and make sure you have a, a, a counselor. You should check with a counselor every few months throughout the school year. And, and I, I saw my counselor recently and I came over with some very good news. There's some good things happening in my life that we've been working on. I want to celebrate. And she said to me, I don't always want to see you when you're upset or things are wrong. I want to hear the celebrations too. And so even my therapist was telling me, like, you have to find spaces that are, that are, um, that are, that are supportive, but in ones that also celebrate your successes too. And, and for some reason, you know, there's been a taboo around that because we, our job is to go help so many other people that we ourselves don't need help. You know, therapists have therapists. And so I would, uh, my advice to teachers would be, and the minute educators would be, find a supportive network, but also find someone professionally you can check in every once in a while to make sure that you're living a balanced um, perspective in life. And I share that with everyone, especially in communities of color, because therapy has always been a bit taboo. And I think you know, we relied on the church to do that, but often ministers aren't trained therapists. And so they, they play a role, but there are people who are trained and have a perspective that'll help you think through it. And therapy, for those who've never been in it, is they don't, you don't go there for the answer. You know, you, you go there to process and to, and to start to develop your own answers to your own questions. And, and I think that's the same type of pedagogy that we, we, we try to put in our classrooms. We don't want to give kids the answer. We want to give them critical skills and tools to kind of process answers to their own questions. So if we're asking kids to do it back to being incompetent, right? We should be modeling that too by getting the support from other individuals so that we can be risk takers in the classroom, but also be very confident personally. You describe how your younger brother and your older sister came home with the same level math textbook mm -hmm. yeah. and how that changed the dynamics of your household. Yeah. We often talk about how home life impacts classroom instruction, but can you elaborate a bit on how classroom instruction impacts home life? So often classrooms are survival mode because there's a curricular structure that allow teachers to thrive. All right. And I'm going to say that for my sister, and my brother, who were three years apart, sister being the older uh, of the two siblings, my mom had the same level of standard for all of her kids. We all did our homework at the same table. We all had the same academic support. We all are equally intelligent. But my sister went to a school that decided that those kids in that school were not going to be challenged. And my brother went to a magnet school. And that school, they were, they, they, they were going to be challenged, be, th be challenged three grade levels ahead of the game. And so... A, a simple choice on a school application based on the promises that my mom was were given by the school system that all her kids would be challenged. She had no idea that at some point that her son and her daughter, three years apart, had a different plan based on the, the district's decision to value some and not others. And so, you know, um, so that's that's a that's a structural issue that had to be changed. And then we go to the curricular um, frame. You know, often we see in some districts, increasing again at East, and when I started there, we didn't have any curriculum, very little curriculum. It wasn't vertically aligned. It wasn't even the same at each grade level. I can't blame the teachers for that, right? No matter how hard they try, they don't know what the kids are coming in with, and they don't know what the expectations are for the exit criteria. And so we had to build the vertical alignment six through 12 in all of our classrooms with our teachers and teacher leaders and administrators so that we understood how the kids are going to move through the system regardless of the teacher they had, right? And so we go back to, uh, and so when, when COVID hit for us, at least our teachers had a curricular framework that they can use with kids during this during the COVID pause 
So when the kids came back, we knew where they were tracked in terms of content. Yes, we had to focus on assessment. And there were some things we still had to work on, but we knew where the kids were because we designed it well before the pandemic. Um, and for schools that didn't have that or still don't have that, I don't know how they survived. And I think that's why we see such a drop in our national assessment scores because most of that represents districts that did not have a clear plan of attack through the curricular lens and teachers were being forced to be in survival mode and just um, adjusting and responding to what was happening as opposed to being proactive and and, um, and and they just didn't have the tools to do that with the knowledge. And so so that, that's what I would say. I think districts must look at curriculum frames uh, vertically aligned to make sure that kids um, don't have to suffer from the inconsistency of standards and readiness of teachers and support staff and administrators um, who are responsible for educating them. And I would say, you know, curriculum is, I would say curriculum is a moral contract with your school community. What you put in it, or what you don't put in it is a, is a conscious decision. So if you're creating lessons and units and you choose not to put things in about W.E.B. Du Bois or, or Frederick Douglass, you're making a, a conscious decision not to do that. And if you don't even know who those people are, then you're making a conscious decision not to find out because the information is, is available. And so I would say even through a, a, a cultural, responsive lens, sustaining lens, we have to really think about how we guarantee that there's representation within those curricular frameworks and structural models because it's thoughtfully put in. And if someone doesn't teach it, then we know they're actually consciously taking it out. So the framework controls what's taught. What teachers do in the classroom, you know, the art of that and the science of that, you know, it's, that's, that's going to always vary because that's people teach differently. But the content and, and, and the rigor um, should never be up for discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Nones, for rocking out with me. Folks and fam of all walks and talks, you've been listening to the LP podcast, Literature and Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. We've been talking with Dr. Sean Nelms about his book, Leading with Purpose, Empowering Others to Create Lasting Change. Dr. Nelms, what is a final quote from the book that you would like to close us out with? I'm going to go back to your earlier statement, right? Um, you said in describing Rochester, the place that you were educated, you said it was it was not a good place. You said it's a sad truth, but beautiful work. So I'm going to tie that quote to something that um, I wrote in chapter six. Uh, it was the chapter uh, is entitled Warning Signs of What's to Come. It's a quote by J. Cole. If you, when you read the book, hopefully you all read it. Um, you'll see there's a number of quotes from hip hop artists and, and historians and family. Um, and J. Cole's quote is, it's beauty in the struggle, ugliness in the success. Hear my words or listen to my signal of distress. And I think what we saw at East when we had a graduation rate of 29% is that there was distress signals all over the community. And kids were yelling for us to do something. Teachers were yelling for us to do something. The community was yelling for us to do something. And through that struggle, you know, um, there was beauty in it. Um, and the more successful we, we became, we became successful because we were able to unveil um, the ugliness that was there prior. And so respecting those con the context of the place you're in and the content that you're in that you're trying to address and the ugliness and the beauty within that whole process um, is why I chose to use that J. Cole, J. Cole quote for that chapter. 
This spin of the LP with Dr. Sean Nelms left me with a few things to reflect on and process, and I often reflect process through poetry, so during this season, I'll be exercising that practice more often. When humility kisses its bride, we begin to collab, not collide. Hear, not fear. Lead, not lord. Feed, not hoard. Embracing incompetence as a trail toward the consummate. Bearing arms that are linked, forging forth versus the dominance. Dominance of broken lenses that lead to broken choices, that lead to fractured teaching, casting children voiceless. Coordinating our lights makes a pervasive dark a less invasive dark, and lets us eventually see the writing on the wall that tells us not forever. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook, or you can find us on Instagram at Lit in Practice Pod or Twitter on Unbounded the LP. On your social or podcast platform, please leave a review and let us know who you'd like for us to interview next. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.